0: We are still in chapter 6, Mishnah number 6 of Pirkei Avos, of the chapters of our fathers. We began this project a long time ago, as we shall see. It was in 2017, more than six years ago. And we're nearing the end, and we're in this very profound Mishnah that tells us that there are 48 different ways to acquire Torah, to acquire wisdom. Each one of them is a path, is a method by which we can become sharper, wiser, more intelligent even, and acquire the wisdom of the Almighty's Torah. And thus it's imperative to study it properly. And way number 28 is Haose Siyag Lidvarov, someone who makes offense for his words. It's not exactly clear what this means. What does it mean to make offense for your words? Now, if this sounds a bit familiar, it's because in the very first Mishnah, in the entire book, which I'm sure all of y'all remember from six years ago, but in the off chance that maybe you forgot it, I'll jog your memory. In the very first Mishnah of the book, chapters of our father's Pirkei Avos, we talk about the history of the transmission of Torah. It starts off, Moshe received the Torah from God at Sinai. And then he transmitted it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets. And the prophets, they transmitted it to the members of the great assembly, the expanded Sanhedrin that reigned at the beginning of the second temple era. So the mission starts off by giving an overview of almost a thousand years of Jewish history, specifically focusing on the great leaders who were the stewards, the custodians, those responsible with the transmission of Torah that Moshe got from God at Sinai. Of course, Moshe's student and successor is Joshua. But then we have a whole period of elders. And then we have a period of prophets. And then finally, we have the prophets to the sages, the members of the great assembly. And it begins with the three lessons conveyed to us by the members of the great assembly. You should be deliberate in judgment. And you should establish many students. And you should make a fence for Torah. We have in our Mishnah, Ha'oseh siag ledvarov, someone who makes a siag, a fence to his words. And that sounds very similar to what we had at the beginning of the book. What does it mean to make a fence around the Torah or to make a fence around your words? So perhaps you recall what we said many years ago. And that is that the Mishnah is talking about the sacred and critical mission that humanity that our nation was entrusted with. God is perfect. His Torah is perfect. We are imperfect. Yet we are tasked with the responsibility of maintaining, perpetuating, continuing the transmission of the Torah without any deviation from the will of Hashem, without any mistakes creeping in, and that's done by fallible humans. And there's nothing worse than attributing to God something which is not true. To make any misrepresentations is bad, but to misrepresent God, that's completely intolerable and unconscionable. For someone to say, I am going to tell you what God wants, what he believes, what is, what is his will in a given circumstance. And that being wrong, that's catastrophic. And we have for Moshe at Sinai, we have God's will on everything. And we have to make that the way we live. There's going to be one nation ever since Sinai that's going to say, we will live as per the will of Hashem in every year of our lives. In accordance with the Torah that Moshe got at Sinai. And no matter what, no matter where we are, no matter what history bestows upon us, no matter how many turmoils we undergo, how many exiles we are subjected to, no matter how much oppression We experience. No matter how fractured we become, we have to maintain that with pristine accuracy. And the mission starts off. Moshe, he received the Torah at Sinai. And there was, by some means, this was transmitted to Joshua. To the elders, to the prophets, to the military assembly, a thousand years. How was this done? How do fallible humans maintain the Almighty's Torah? They said three things. Be deliberate in judgment. When you are a judge, you are evaluating a circumstance and you are tasked with determining what the will of Hashem is. And if you're very quick to judge, and you fire off your response, there's a lot more risk that you may blunder. You may misrepresent the will of God. So the first thing it tells us is be deliberate in judgment. Recognize your fallibility. Recognize that you are imperfect. Imperfect. And act accordingly. Oh, and have lots of students. More students means more opinions, voices, arguments, sounding boards. The role of a student is to understand, but also to poke holes in the arguments of the teacher. If the teacher makes a mistake, if the teacher contradicts themselves, the role of the student is to question. And if there are a lot of students, you are likely to pick up a lot more problems. That too is a way to guarantee a safety measure against mistakes. And finally, make a fence around Torah. Recognize that you are fallible, And prepare accordingly by taking preventative measures to make a fence around the Torah, make a rabbinic fence around a Torah law to keep your distance between you and a blunder. And thus the mission of the first mission of our book has internal consistency. We have this idea of the transmission of the Torah from generation to generation. And we no longer have Sinai, we no longer have this idea of prophecy. You know, when there is a question that Moshe has he is allowed to go to God and say I need some clarification when we have the daughters of Tslavchad, and there's a whole question as to what are the rules governing inheritance in the event that there's no sons Moshe's allowed to just walk in have a divine audience and find the answer After Moshe dies, we can no longer rely on prophecy. The Torah is no longer in the heavens. It's in our hands. And the way we do it is by being deliberate, having lots of students that provide valuable feedback and input, and making fences. That is the beginning of our book. And now we're talking to the candidate sage, And we're laying out the ways to wisdom, and we have as one of the ways to wisdom the notion of making offense around your words. Meaning that the notion of offense, it's not just a way to perpetuate the Torah, it's also a way to acquire it. What this means is that absent offense, there is A bit of a dangerous overconfidence. If someone doesn't have fences, if someone doesn't consider that maybe they are fallible and they're sure they're right and there's no hedging and there's no consideration, maybe you're wrong. That is a recipe for making mistakes. So the fence around your wisdom is a preventative measure to make sure you don't make mistakes and to always maintain an open mind. To ensure that your words are strong and secure, you have to reinforce it with offense. And part of this means is that you have to be receptive to criticism of your words and your ideas, you and to be flexible to amend them when you are shown other points that maybe you haven't considered. The Talmud tells us, "No sage in history." Ever said unvarnished truth before failure. A necessary step to be able to arrive at a certain standing where your words are in line with the Almighty's, a necessary prerequisite is where you kind of fumble your way to that. You fail, 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 and you adjust. And every time you adjust, you've now upgraded. And you only arrive at a point where you can confidently render a ruling and and, and have an understanding if you've made mistakes. But suppose someone is never adjusting. The first idea that they have, that's the one they stick with, and they reinforce it. Then their ideas are not secure. They're not strong. There is no fence around their words. And they may be spiraling further and further into the abyss of a mistake and reinforcing their erroneous notions. We've all been in arguments where the other side is not even considering what we're saying. They're locked in a certain frame of mind and nothing else is even considered. If we were honest with ourselves, we would say that sometimes we've been guilty of that as well where you're so fixated on one position that the person's talking to you and it's just it's not penetrating. You're not actually stopping to consider maybe there's something there. I had an interesting conversation with someone on Shabbos. This is a famed author who wrote an acclaimed book on a Torah matter, and he was in town in Houston for Shabbos. So I started chatting with him, and I asked him, well, okay, well, you finished that book. Incidentally, we have a copy of his book in the Torch Center. What are you working on now, I asked him. So his first book was on a very interesting and esoteric subject. And then he tells me, well, I'm writing another book on a very, very interesting and esoteric Subject one that I'm very, very interested in. So I started to barrage him with questions and with points of consideration on that topic. Went through many, many different elements of this topic. And I raised a point, a very sharp question. And he's like, wow, I I never considered that. The, the, The subject that he picked is one that really... It's featured all over the Talmud. It's not like an isolated idea. It's a very expansive idea. So I asked him a question, very sharp question. And right away came up with an answer. An answer that I really didn't like. And I tried to disprove it. I said, well, we have this citation that seems to disagree with this answer. But we were chatting for 45 minutes. And a few times he came back to this Question that he never can say. He's like, I have to update my notes. I have to update my manuscript. I, I'm, I, I'm going to go back and, and I'm going to attribute it to you. I said, don't attribute it to me because I disagree with it. <laughs> I could not dislodge him off his point. So I'm thinking that this is a scholar who on one hand is very receptive to what I have to say, but I feel like the receptiveness was a bit incomplete. He heard what I have to say and he's like, I- I'm going to consider that. I'm going to write that down in my notes. I'm going to add that to the manuscript but then I was like pleading with him, no, actually you think it's wrong. He wasn't he wasn't budging. So I, I would give him like a you know, partial credit in this matter of making offense. But this is I think idea number 1. When someone else says something to genuinely consider it, that actually reinforces your ideas because like a student sharpening the teacher, like a study partner sharpening their Torah sparring mate. When someone else adds some ideas and you truthfully consider it, that's a way of upgrading your ideas and your thinking. And I would add, this is not something that is exclusively the domain of external external feedback. Someone who is serious about pursuing truth is always reconsidering their ideas. Now, I want to stress, this does not mean to reconsider the 13 principles of faith. You know, the, the foundational ideas, those, it's very unwise to reconsider them. But your notions, and your ideas, and your approaches, if you're serious about trying trying to find the truth, you should always internally be reassessing what you believe because maybe it's actually wrong. I recently was interviewed on a podcast. Someone wanted to interview me about my grandfather, bless blessed memory and his methods of, of pedagogy and thinking. And I mentioned that he underwent a seismic change in his life With respect to secular psychology, not psychiatry, psychology, he initially was much more of a proponent of it. And over the course of his, of his life, he became a strident opponent of secular psychology. And he said that, that actually, no, it's, it could be quite harmful to to use the means and the methods of secular psychologists. And I even found a letter in his writings where he describes in detail why he thinks it's flawed and why his position had changed. This is rare. Most people, once they have a philosophy, once they have a way of life, once they have a way of, of thinking, the notion of reconsidering that, it's, it's very cumbersome to do that. And it's also painful to do that. Because you're evaluating your identity, you're, reeval- you're, you're considering your identity. And that's something which is difficult and painful to do. You know, people don't change their identity so easily. Most people, they're not actually pursuing truth. They're not trying to understand really what God wants above all. And therefore, their affiliations, their identities, even in secular even even like in politics, right? How many people actually change, actually think independently, actually tow uh, or, or or veer away from towing the party line? So the idea of, of holding your beliefs strongly, but also loosely enough to have them subject to revision and reconsideration, if you encounter evidence that that runs in opposition to what you believe, that is a way of strengthening your foundational ideals, your your principles, your way of thinking, and to become actually a a greater candidate for wisdom. Most people, they are just looking for confirmation. You have your pre-existing beliefs, your priors, and every new development, every new piece of information can be contorted into your pre-existing beliefs. It's all confirmation. It's never reconsideration. And of course, this is not the way of the truth seeker. A truth seeker is someone who's always open to new information and new evidence that may change their precepts and may change their understanding. And it's really hard to do because we wrap our beliefs into our identity. And it's a form of martyrdom really to change your identity because you have to say, well, the previous me was wrong. And that's very painful. But it's critical, because if we don't have this, we may be led into crooked thinking, erroneous thinking, or the worst of all, misattributing and misrepresenting the will of the Almighty. Now, the Maharal here in his commentary he focuses specifically on the idea of making offense, Lidvarov for your words. And he highlights the importance of using precise language and not saying anything that's ambiguous. To make sure that what your the words that you say mean precisely what you understand. And using ambiguous language, it's actually a sign, says Maharal, of muddied thinking. When people, you know, they ballpark things and they approximate things, and they just use a bunch of words or, or worse, they use jargon. That is actually a sign that they don't really understand a given piece of wisdom. Part of understanding something is understanding the precise, precise words that apply to said thing. And he quotes the Talmud, the Talmud sells, it says in the book of Ereven on page 53a, that the people of Judea, they were very meticulous in their words, and therefore their Torah Endured. Whereas the people from the Galilee were not as meticulous in their words, and therefore their Torah did not endure. This seems to connect the words with the understanding. And this, of course, is, you know, today everyone seems to come around to this. People are realizing today that much, if not all, of our intelligence is intimately connected with our capacity to verbalize and articulate and assign words to things, to concepts, to precepts. All this artificial intelligence, there are a lot of different elements of artificial intelligence. The big the bigger one, the big development of the last year or so is the LLMs, the large language models, which seems to be smart, but it's only smart because it takes trillions and trillions of words, and it just, from the words and the word structure, it's able to kind of predict what would be the most likely next word, you know, for these series of words that were presented in the query and the prompt. So, in essence, a lot of our discoveries, our our humanities discoveries, in artificial intelligence, are the connection of intelligence to words. And of course, we knew this a long time ago. In fact, the primary differentiation between humans and animals, according to the Torah, is the capacity to speak. Man became a living thing. Chapter 2 of Genesis. He became a speaking being the critical, crucial, fundamental differentiation between man and beast is the capacity of verbal articulation. And of course, that's connected to our mind. Muddied words equals muddied thinking. And when someone mixes words together and it's all a jumble of words, that is an indication of muddied thinking, but also that exacerbates unclear thinking. If we want clear understanding, we have to have clear words. And then he adds, the morale adds, that if you have clear words, not only will you understand concepts better, but you'll remember it better. Because when something's neatly organized in words, it can be neatly filed away. Whereas if it's just some jumble of words, it's not going to be filed away in a, in, in, in a manner that can be easily retrieved. We all know that the foremost commentator on the Torah, on the Tanakh, and the Talmud is Rashi. And there are a lot of reasons why Rashi is the number one commentator. But even his contemporaries, they marveled at the precision with which Rashi used language. In fact, even the contemporaries like the Me'iri writes that if you read Rashi's words with a critical eye, You will see that all the questions that his contemporaries asked on him, they're all resolved. And we know that Rashi wrote his commentaries several times. He wrote it, and then he refined it, and he refined it, and he refined it. And the result is one of, of stunning precision. And one of the ways that we improve our understanding of the Torah, but also of how to think and how to articulate is with the study of Rashi, which is why it's the first thing that we, we all study. You read, you read the verse, you read it with Rashi and you read Rashi with such an eagle-eyed view on the precise words because you know he wrote it with precision. Ramam as well. There are books dedicated to studying the Ramam with such a critical eye and specifically focusing on why he chose this word as opposed to that word. Why did he organize it in this manner? This law really should belong elsewhere. He did it with the utmost precision and studying it in that manner unlocks wonderful insights and understanding. Now, the truth is that all the medieval sages wrote with precision. And that's why we study them with, with such intense focus. But this can be very helpful for us as well. If we want to upgrade our thinking, we have to learn to be more precise with our own words. Understand the words that we're going to say and say exactly what you mean. There's an old saying that we were always taught in, taught in the yeshiva. If you have a flaw in articulation, you also have a flaw in understanding. If you cannot explain it clearly, you actually don't understand it clearly. These are some of the ideas that we can glean from this way to wisdom to make a fence around our words, like The Sanhedrin, they made fences around the Torah. They acknowledged their own fallibility and the propensity for error that exists among fallible humans. And they took preventative measures. We too cannot rely on our own intellectual infallibility because we're not. In fact, we are bound to fail if we are ever to succeed. And therefore, we have to be receptive to criticism, to reconsideration and revision. And specifically in the area of speech, of words. If we are precise in our words, that is an indication of precision in thought and understanding. And if the words are all just jumbled together, there's probably room for further clarification, crystallization, sifting through what we know and to really distill it down to what we understand. If we can capture it in precise words, then we know we are thinking clearly. This is way number 28 of the ways to wisdom. We still have 20 or so to go, but we are very appreciative of the incredible work that our sages, again, these are absolute titans, of Torah, but of wisdom and knowledge and thinking and understanding, they did a great service to us where they delineated, they enumerated for us 48 ways to wisdom. If we deploy these tactics and these strategies and these insights, we too will be on the path towards wisdom, which of course is what we covet. Of course, my email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to your questions, your comments, and your Feedback, if I ever make a mistake, please, 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 please send me an email. I really cherish and appreciate it. Mistakes happen. And uh in line with this way to wisdom, I am very appreciative of, of it. I don't view it as an attack. I don't view it as an admonishment or a rebuke. I cherish it. Send it my way. RabbiWolbejima.com.